0: Welcome to Investment Matters, the Newton Investment Management Podcast. I'm Matt Goodburn from the Investment Communications team. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Elizabeth McManus, who is an investigative researcher within the investigative research team based in Boston, working alongside our our podcast colleagues and Double Take, uh, Rafe Lewis and Jack Encarnacion. So, Elizabeth, uh, welcome. It's great to have you with us.
1: Thanks for having me. Matt. It's really good to be here.
0: Uh, it's good to have you here as well. Um, obviously, we talk a lot about our multi-dimensional research platform at Newton. Uh, a very key part of that is 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 your team, Elizabeth. Um, so let's let's perhaps start by taking a step back and really perhaps explaining to the listeners what exactly we mean by investigative research.
1: Yeah, thank you. I think that's a good starting point, Matt. I, when I talk about what we do on the investigative research team. I like to first point to the past lives, as it were, of my colleagues, Rafe and Jack, who you mentioned. Rafe and Jack were both investigative journalists by trade before taking their talents to the investment world. And so what they are doing or what we're doing as a team is applying a journalistic lens to the way that we forensically analyze what we would characterize as more deep due diligence projects. And so what that looks like in practice is that our analysts and portfolio managers are doing all the things that good stock pickers do. They are engaging with the management teams of the companies that they own. They are tracking earnings. They are forecasting out into the future to the best of their ability with all of the predictive tools that they have at their disposal. Where we come in is when there might be a question that is nagging that analyst or portfolio manager. It might be, some negative news flow they've seen. It might be something that they just can't put their finger on, but ultimately needs a a, a deeper dive. And so that's where we come in. Uh, we typically are speaking with as many people as we can to better inform a mosaic of, of diversified opinions so that when we come back to our investment team, we can explain to them that we've talked to as many people as we can that are as close to this issue at hand and give them at least a the best, the best view that we can with qualitative tools that are outside of of numbers and charts. And as for me, for background, I I used to be on the commercial team here at Newton. I was a client director, and I had always been incredibly fascinated by the work that Rafe and Jack had done, basically since my first day on the job. And it was a fascination that I really just never could quite let go of. And so eventually, I had worked up the car to tell Rafe that I was interested. And to my surprise, he took me on as an apprentice. Uh, That was over a year ago. I've been on the team now for about one full year and really especially excited because when I joined, my remit was to focus on ESG. So it's been really exciting. And I've continued to learn a lot from Rafe and Jack because of their past experience. But every project I've worked on has been more fascinating than the last.
0: Okay, well, that's great to hear that uh, the career progression is working well for you at Newton. Let's break it down now and look at look at what that means. You've mentioned that you obviously you have a core focus on on ESG. I mean, that can obviously come in many forms. So we obviously can't mention company names for for obvious reasons. Should we start by looking at perhaps some of the work you've done uh, around? Let's talk about sort of diversified miners in that resource area. There's quite a rich vein of work that you've been doing, isn't there, over the last few months?
1: yeah that's a, a great starting point with diversified miners, I think many of us here in the investment community and elsewhere know that it's a industry that's not unfamiliar to controversy. Um, a lot of that has to do with the fact that mining involves manual labor, which in in many cases can be dangerous. So just from a starting point that does invite uh, a bit more scrutiny in many different areas. Um, I've had a couple of different projects in this arena, as it were. I've looked into. Charges of bribery and corruption, uh, particularly with miners working in the developing world. And I've also worked uh, extensively on a mining company where claims of of human rights abuses were made. And so my my remit there was to understand is is this really true? And and if it is, what does that actually mean for the overall risk assessment for the company? And I, I think that's an important distinction to make too that you said before, ESG means a lot of different things to different people. At, at Newton, what we're focused on is materiality. And so while this particular issue, alleged human rights abuses, it's, it's very serious, and it, it, there are multiple different angles to take from that, what we're trying to really ascertain is, what does this mean as a risk for owning owning this company? And so in this case, it had everything to do with the way that that this company was rated on an ESG basis. And the company in question was saying, this isn't true. These are legacy issues. This is uh, These are things of the past. And so my goal is to understand if that was true. Um, unfortunately, it very much was. And I was able to work with an NGO that had sources on the ground who could corroborate that these ongoing human rights abuses were in fact happening. And those are anything to run the gamut from rape, murder, excessive force, particularly by... Um, those that were securing the mine in question. And again, I apologize for being vague, but as you mentioned, Matt, we can't really uh, mention specific names here. And so this was a great example though of, of working with a diversified set of voices to really understand what was going on. So the NGO was, was just one source. And again, we worked really closely, which was, which was great. I also spoke with journalists on the ground who had their own sources that they were able to, in some, some ways, point me in the right direction. And ultimately, what what we found was that while this was very much going on, it was it was less about a, a moral value judgment in the situation, but more about understanding this is a company that is publicly saying the opposite. What does that mean for our confidence in management? What does that mean for the way that we engage? And what does that mean ultimately for how those risks are expressed? Again, it was it's fascinating work, and the industry in particular, my, Diversa Mining is like I said, not a stranger to this type of controversy, but it is also important to consider on a relative scale these different controversies, if you will, whether it's human rights abuses or corruption and bribery or, you know, people getting hurt on the job. These things are all important to consider on a relative basis, but it's certainly been a really interesting piece of work for me.
0: Yeah, no, no, it sounds it. And as you say, quite a, you take quite a forensic lens looking at some of these issues. You've been doing some work, I believe, around um sustainability ratings haven't you working quite closely with the RI team do you want to talk yeah. to a bit more about some of the work you've been doing
1: yeah absolutely uh, on a day-to-day basis i feel really fortunate to be working with the RI team because they are our de facto subject matter experts on a lot of these ESG related topics and so the research analysts for example are are experts they also act as portfolio advisors to the investment team and so whenever i'm digging in on a new subject matter any time have been tasked with a new project, I'm typically going with them first, going to them first for background because they do have such uh, deep knowledge that really spans such a wide area. Um, and then the other way that I'm really working with the responsible investment team is with their stewardship team. And that team is charged with our shareholder engagement efforts and and also trying to drive an agenda of how we are working and collaborating with the companies that we're invested in to ultimately affect what we hope is positive change. And so I've mentioned before that we oftentimes our work is geared towards arming our investors with the best questions they could be asking towards management. And that's no different in the way that I work with the engagement team. Oftentimes I'm trying to help them be better informed in the way that they engage with companies. And then uh, you mentioned in the controversy list, I worked closely with our RI data team to be able to collate a list of our holdings at the firm that are organized and sorted by their respective ESG rating. And so what that comes down to is looking for companies where the rating may have changed for the worse on a month-to-month basis. And from there, I'm usually flagging anything I see as a potential red flag, not only to the responsible investment team research analysts, but especially our investors analysts and portfolio managers that might hold that stock and so what that culminates in I think is a really holistically collaborative effort across the platform because everybody has some involvement in it and so while I look to the RI team for their expertise because they've been doing this work for so long ultimately my job from there is to see if anything warrants more uh, deep due diligence deep dive work that hopefully will be helpful to our investors in the end.
0: The companies we already invest in and then obviously there's companies that we're looking at can you explain is there is there much sort of is there a difference between you know these two obviously existing ones you'll be monitoring them presumably as you, as you say uh, but ones that are coming up for potential investment is there a difference in how you would approach approach that
1: yeah i, I think that's a great question because for us i think our priority is always to be uh, as informed as we can about those companies that we already own because in many ways any work that we do in a company that we already own is in the best case scenario going to inform engagement with that management team and i i always say that one of the i think that one of the our most important value adds that we can offer to our investors is that we are hoping to give them through the conversations of diversified sources we're speaking with we're hoping to give our investors questions on the quarterly management call that other analysts aren't asking. And so we we tend to prioritize anything that we own particularly if there could be an unforeseen risk down the road that might not be uncovered by the market quite yet. When it comes to helping out or doing research for a company that we don't yet own, we often like to think of ourselves as maybe sort of the last I don't want to borrow an American football analogy and I'll probably walk this back, but the last 5 yards as it were. So if our I think I mentioned before, if our investment analysts are doing all the things that good stock pickers do, they have using all those tools at their disposal. If it's that one last question that they can't quite satisfy, that's usually where we'll come in. So yeah. typically, it can be to give more confidence or to confirm a thesis that might already be held by that analyst, or it could be, I know that you're looking to buy this, but did you consider this? It could. So it could go both ways. It could be work that we do that helps to inform and confirm the buy, or it could be work that we do that that could lead to an analyst potentially leaving that on the table. Uh, so yeah. it's, it differs a bit, but at the end of the day, what we are doing, regardless of, of a company that we own or want to buy, we're trying to come up with a diversified set of voices. And so that is, and again, coming back to the journalistic aspect of this, we are looking for we're looking for sources that are credible, we rate each source on a one to 10 scale of how credible we we might they might be. So in in some cases, oftentimes, we're looking to speak with former employees of the company that we might be investing in. And so when you consider why someone might take our call, so there are oftentimes I wonder what, what what people have to gain really from picking up the phone, but for us, we have to try. Sometimes when people want to talk about their past experience, they have an axe to grind, And so that's, that's an important consideration to take into effect when you're having these conversations. Others are interested because they've never been asked or had a phone call like this of someone wanting to hear about their past experience. Others wanna correct the record straight, particularly if there might be negative news flow about a company. There might, oftentimes there are employees that say, I know this is what's being written in the news, but I actually had a positive experience. What we're trying to do is sort of amalgamate those to, to give the most objective opinion that we can And so regardless of the ultimate modus operandi for why we're doing this, whether it's buying or selling, that's what the commonality is that we're always trying to come up with a diversified set of voices that better inform the overall mosaic.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It comes back to that mosaic, doesn't it, that you you mentioned Mm -hmm. just there and earlier. And I know that I've heard, and I think you've probably used the same phrase, but I know Rafe's talked about the final bit to get get over the line. As you say, it can go either way. But yeah, that's quite an appropriate way of looking at it, I suppose. I mean, should we look at, let's look at a few more examples, actually, because obviously it it is such an interesting area. I mean, there's other areas we can look at, perhaps. I mean, you do a lot of work around regulatory change, for example, You're obviously change with perhaps involving the fixed income asset class and the European Union. Can you just give us a bit of a flavour of some of the work you've done there?
1: Oftentimes on the investigative team, we are asked to look into developing legislation. So in the case that you're referencing, the fixed income team had asked me to understand, and this was going back a couple of months ago, the headlines at the time were whether or not the European Union would respond in kind to the United States Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, What what we know now, uh, things that, that through the developments that have taken place since then is that the European Union absolutely is going to respond to the Inflation Reduction Act, um, and that's going to take the form of a bundle of legislative proposals that is collectively known as the European European Green Industrial Plan. And so what the fixed income team wanted to know, which ultimately was a benefit to the overall investment team, is, is what is this actually going to mean for European companies? And right now, um, at the time of this recording, there's still going to be a, a meeting next month amongst the European Council to further hammer out the details. But what the response really looks like is a a mechanism to expedite access to state aid in the European Union so that countries can respond in kind to continue to incentivize companies to invest in Europe where The the threat has been that the United States Inflation Reduction Act has made it incredibly attractive for companies to base manufacturing of green technology in the United States. Secondly, which is also very important, is that in addition to accessing more state aid, there has been discussions about potentially taking on more joint debt in the European Union because expediting access to state aid does inherently benefit some of the larger economic players like Germany and France. And so there has been much discussion amongst the 27 member bloc about what happens to those fiscally weaker member states of the European Union. So in bringing it back to how this all works in, in terms of how we approach this in the investigative team, in this case, I'm looking to speak with academics, journalists who are close to those close to the policy and to, in the EU. I'm also looking to speak with, with think tanks, people, academic institutions that are Tasked with trying to understand what that this actually means for the overall economy and for European companies, and so the, the all of those different sources I think are a good example of how we'd approach a project like this as opposed to most of our work, which is geared towards specific companies. And so it is really interesting to be sort of with the news flow on really important developments like this. And overall, while the fixed income team asks for it, it is helpful for our investors to have a view on what big landmark pieces of legislation ultimately mean for them and their portfolio companies. I should add though as for for this whole discussion about the EU legislative developments is that so much still has yet to be finalized and so there is rigorous debate there are multiple different member states hold different opinions on this and hopefully at least developing research I think and hope has been helpful for the investment team.
0: Yeah, no absolutely. I think another another area which I've heard you speak about this before, and you and others in the team, which I think is quite an interesting and nuanced area. We often, perhaps, we could be accused, or Western companies can be accused of looking at perhaps emerging market companies uh, through a through a Western lens. And I know you've worked quite closely on a, a particular company. Perhaps you could talk about how that sort of, you know, the contradictions that you have to deal with when when you're looking at something, a company like that.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that one up because early on in this work, when I began working in EESG and particularly working on companies in the developing world, it became quite clear to me how important it is to sort of shed your Western lens as best as you can. And so in this case, as you've mentioned, I was asked to look into claims of predatory lending at an emerging markets telecom company. This company had been, on one hand, lauded for its positive effect on the lives of local community. Uh, This company, more or less what their value proposition is in this context, is that they were, for the first time, was providing access to mobile phones to broad swaths of the population um, with the ability to send money back and forth to one another, something that had never been done before in in this region. And then crucially and really at the crux of what we're talking about here this company was providing loans micro loans to anybody that wanted to apply for them and so the reason why that was so important is that in this region that we're talking about access to credit in general had historically been very difficult to come by so in many different ways and for good reason this was hailed by economic development experts as a huge success story but on the other side of this there have been claims that those loans or even to access more mobile minutes, for example, if you wanted more talk time or texting, the interest rates associated were were predatory. And um, unfortunately that did prove to be true. And in some cases to access a, a small micro loan, the interest rate could be annual of 300% or north of 300% annualized. And so it was really difficult because on one hand, we can say from a Western perspective, well, that's criminal. And in some cases, you, some ways, you were, you know, putting these people in debt. But on the other hand, I, it was, and this is, I'll never forget this conversation. I spoke with an academic who was based in the area, very familiar with the situation, and he said, "Well, have you ever been on the ground in this country?" And I said, "I have not." And he said, "Well, you could never understand that this is a social utility that is." beyond even that categorization, he said, this is akin to the the air that we breathe. People couldn't live without it now. And that really made me stop to think, it is important to think, we could just, we could strip this down to what the negative accusation is here, but it is also important to consider holistically what this means for this entire population. And so, It is. It's the reason why I think one of the strengths of Newton is that we are an investment team that is no stranger to rigorous academic debate. Um, Mm. And a situation like this, I think it's crucial to get as many people in a room as you can to sort of talk it back and forth and to really drill down on what it is that we think is most materially financially. But it um, it makes the work really interesting. It's definitely one of the most challenging aspects of it, but it's also why I really love this job.
0: Yeah no absolutely and, and and that comes through obviously it is a it shows you how nuanced all of this is isn't it and it, it again as you say it reiterates the importance of like quite a forensic uh, 360 approach there's so many different things to consider i think we're, we're we're nearly done but i think it'd be quite interesting one more area which i think we haven't touched on yet but i know has been uh, taking up quite a lot of your time in the last few months and and going forward we may might be leading some quite profound changes to for us to watch out for so there's a we can talk about um a situation in in the in the finance sector in 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 the banking sector um do you want to talk about some of the work you've done there i know it's something that's ongoing but uh within reason we, we can sort of maybe perhaps you can shed some light on some of that very interesting work
1: yeah, absolutely. This was actually one of the first projects I had worked on when I joined the investigative team. And in some ways, I think really confirmed for me that this was work I wanted to be doing. But ultimately, we were asked to understand the potential effects of a very wide ranging uh, tax evasion scandal emanating from Germany. It's it's known as the cumex scandal, if you ever feel like looking it up. And without, without getting into the weeds, ultimately, the this was a dividend stripping scandal where, in Germany, per its tax code, it was a legal loophole at the time. Companies could essentially uh, claim a double tax rebate, um, and so most most banks in the world were taking advantage of this loophole. You could, it was, you know, more more were using it than not, and it was because it was legal. And so eventually, the German regulators, after receiving information that they couldn't ignore from an, an investigative research, uh, consortium of journalists globally, actually, that were pointing out the effects of this, which was costing the European taxpayer billions and billions of dollars. And so ultimately, Germany decided we're going to crack down on this. And the project for me was to understand what that, what the risk could be for, for banks that we owned in our portfolio. And it was fascinating work because the, the whistleblowers in this case, who really blew the lid on the investigation and passed tips to journalists, they would only speak with prosthetics and voice changers to discuss uh, those aspects that they had brought to the regulators. And so that really gave you an idea for how high stakes this was. Um, There's now a prosecutor's office in Germany that is completely dedicated to these cases. Um, I I expect from what I have read and heard from sources that this is going to continue on for several more years. Um, Germany is, is intent on trying to recoup as much of this as they possibly can. Uh, we spoke with some some of those who had who had actually been formally charged in the case, which was fascinating, um, just to be able to speak to people that close to it. And ultimately, what what our finding was is that it's difficult to really, I think, ascertain just how financially material it could be. But the, I think what we found in the end is that a lot of the A lot of the firms that were charged with being in on the ground of this tax scheme and continuing to take part in it, even after warnings are the ones that prosecutors are going to be focusing on. So it was um, it was really interesting to follow something so newsy. And I think that will continue to be newsy. But it um, yeah, it was really, really interesting work to try to get to as close as we could to people that were familiar with firsthand experience of the overall scandal
0: yeah no I, I bet it was i mean and as you say it's a, another example of uh the wide scope of the work that you do and i can see that clearly it's it's pretty fascinating and like, you have got all these different sort of areas where you're hopefully you know trying to make a difference um within the investment team so it it, it all sounds fascinating and obviously Uh, your team plays a key part in in, in on on our investment platform with all of our research. So Elizabeth, we wish you the best of luck with it. I hope it continues to be uh, as exciting and rewarding for you going forward. And and hopefully we can catch up again in the future and hear, maybe get an update from you later in the year. So thanks very much for joining us.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Matt. I really appreciated you having me on today. Thanks again.
0: So we'll we'll wrap it up there then today. Um thanks everyone again for joining us and we will catch up with you all again very soon.